Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still, after almost two years, less ukulele. There's less ukulele than I'd like, for sure. Mm-hmm. On this episode, yeast. Yeast. That's the real worker of our beer-making process. Let's face it, all we ever do is make wort, as the aphorism goes. But yeast... Yeast is what takes our hard mash day work and turns it into the lovely, delicious, incredible beverage known as beer. I was I was wondering if you were going to break out that old tired saw. It's a saw thing. <laughs> That's right. But now the question is, are we doing enough to make our workers happy? So let's sit back and take a look at the current state of what we can do for our yeasty friends. But first, here are a few words from the people who make this show possible. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, if you have any interactions with our sponsors, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on the Brew Files or on Experimental Brewing so they know they're spending their money wisely. Now, with the recent announcement uh, from Omega Yeast, they just literally put this up, uh, Kickstarter and I think uh, pre-orders, and by the time this episode comes out, it will almost be available to the general public, that they are doing a 
can starter that they're calling proper P-R-O-P-P-E-R. We'll include a link in the show notes. A pre-canned concentrated wort that, you know, allows you to sort of skip some of the, the hassle of making a starter to make sure that you actually get, you know, your yeast growth going and everything else. Well, with that announcement, we kind of figured it was time for us to actually, at episode 49, to sit back and talk some yeast starter basics. So why don't we just start, Denny, do you make starters and why do you make a starter? I make a starter when I use liquid yeast for any beer over 1040. That's a, a lower gravity than the yeast companies tell you you need a starter for. But uh, my experience with uh, pitching directly into a, a gravity higher than that has not been uh, always as great as it could be. So my rule of thumb is to make a starter for anything over 1040. The idea that I work on these days is that I want healthy, active yeast going into my beer. For uh, a long time now, uh, people have been uh, really stressing about cell count and stuff like that. Uh, I think that it's the activity and the health of your yeast that matters a lot more. The more healthy yeast you can bring to the fermenter, uh, the more other stupid things you can get away with. You can overwhelm the bacteria before they really get a chance to do too much to your beer hopefully. You can overcome pitch rate concerns because when that yeast gets in there, it's going nuclear and it's going to be really reproducing a lot right away. Uh, better, less stressful fermentations are what you'll get once you do your part to pitch healthy, active yeast that are ready to get in there and kick some butt. Yeah. And just as a bit of background, when we both started in the late 90s, it was a big struggle just to get people to do a yeast starter. You know, everybody listened to the yeast companies that were out there and said, oh, look, our packages have enough yeast in it to be able to tackle your work. You don't have to do anything to them. Just pitch and go. And I remember when I started that, you know, it was a big message out there from, you know, sort of my mentor about yeast, Dr. Mary Beth Rains, to actually go and make a starter. And it took a lot of convincing because, let's face it, homebrewers are kind of lazy. And so I got taught the proper way to make a starter. And even back then, there were some funny things going on, uh, things like airlocks and everything else. But before we get there, let's just knock the obvious one off the table, which is dry yeast. Uh, Denny, I noticed that you said that you do this for liquid yeast and not for dried yeast. And I'm in the same boat, too. That's correct. Now, I mean, the old school logic that I was taught was that you were supposed to rehydrate your freeze-dried critters uh, because, frankly, when those freeze-dried critters hit the wort, if you just sprinkle them in directly, you know, the idea is that their cell walls haven't had time to properly hydrate, and so there's not a lot of pressure from sort of the toxic levels of osmotic pressure from the sugar that's in the wort, and so you'll instantly lose half your yeast. Yeah, but you know what? That turns out to not be a big deal. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, so I was always taught rehydrate in some warm water, just like you're proofing bread yeast, add a little something like go firm, which is a yeast rehydration nutrient. Winemakers still do this all the time. But I was going to say recently, like Lalamond and a couple of other people have come out and said, eh, you'll be okay. Just go ahead. Just go ahead and pitch. Yeah. I, I stopped rehydrating God, close to 20 years ago, I guess, uh, because uh, on the Rec Crafts Brewing uh, Usenet group that I was on, Dan Listerman, who if you don't know Dan, he's been around forever, runs a homebrew shop in uh, Cleveland and uh, also has and a, a brewery. brewery. And a brewery, right. Dan said that he had stopped advising the customers of his homebrew shop to rehydrate because he was finding that they were having more trouble from rehydrating due to the fact that they were doing at too high a temperature and killing off most of the yeast. So you know, that, that made sense to me. It made 
the whole thing easier. I started pitching directly and uh, had great success with it. I think that the whole thing about, uh, oh, you're killing part of your yeast cells and everything is more of a theoretical concern than an actual concern. And, you know, well, you know reality seems to bear that out. Uh, time to go back to the Maliazzi quote. Uh, you know, reality often astonishes theory. Yeah, good old car talk. Is That's there right. nothing it can't do? <laughs> the thing is, I mean, dry yeast is very convenient. It's very shelf-stable. I keep a fleet of it around because sometimes I just don't know if I'm going to uh, brew and I brew at the last minute. To me, dry yeast still has some limitations in terms of like stylistic choices, things that I can do. And I haven't found a dry yeast for everything that I, that I truly like, for instance, say my beloved Cezanne. There is the notion then of liquid yeast, you know, which you know that we're fans of. After all, there's still Denny's favorite hanging out there. That's only a, a liquid yeast. Like I said, my Saison yeasts are all liquid. When I first got into this game, you know, the the story of making yeast starters and making you know things ready for your yeast was all about what most realistically be called a viability starter, right? It was all about trying to make enough viable yeast and getting into numbers and everything else. And it's the old school way of making a starter. It's how I learned. And basically, you know, the idea is to increase your yeast growth, better health. And what you really just need to do is make a mini batch of beer. You know, so you go get a pot, you add some water, you bring that up to temperature, add some DME, boil it for 15 minutes and, you know, then let it cool and put it into a sanitized, you know, growler or some other vessel and then pitch your yeast into that and then, you know, let it go. At least in those days, you let it ferment out completely before you pitched it. And the whole idea, again, was to maximize yeast growth, right? It was not about, you know, trying to hit things in an appropriate cycle. It was trying to get enough yeast cells to hit, say, like 10, mil uh, 10 million cells per milliliter. And, you know, of course, then there were also bonus points if you used an Erlenmeyer flask because we all loved Erlenmeyer flasks back in the day, but they do break. I had one that one time, remember, they're supposed to be made of Pyrex, right? So in theory, they're, you know, thermal shock proof. Well, it turns out there's multiple grades of Pyrex and not all of them do so well. That's right. And I was going to making a starter one time. I had a beautiful uh, five liter Erlenmeyer flask, a massive flask thing every time i picked it up and moved it around i kind of felt like i needed like gloves and an apron just to protect myself from it had it on my stove turned it on got everything boiling turned off the stove and something happened where the whole flask shattered on my stove as it was cooling down and four liters of work went everywhere that's only one of the reasons that boiling in an Erlenmeyer is a bad idea too man it's like it almost seems to accelerate or or increase the chances of uh, a boil over because that that little tiny neck i mean it just doesn't release the heat and pressure well enough uh, and also the shape of the vessel itself is terrible for it i mean there's a reason that science has boiling flasks and they're not Erlenmeyer flasks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the best thing that you can say about an Erlenmeyer flask is that it goes great on a stir plate and is not that expensive overall, but still kind of expensive. It's a hell of a lot more expensive than a growler jug. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot more expensive than buying a gallon of apple juice and using the uh, jug from that. That's true. Now, at first... That was all that was necessary, basically boil, cool off, and pitch. Uh, and then, of course, when we started, everybody wanted to have an airlock on their starters because, you know, well, you're supposed to keep it safe. And then eventually we started to get people to switch over to using foil because you got better yeast growth uh, because of air exchange. 
We learned to agitate the flask periodically. So my rule of thumb used to always be every time you walk by the flask, go pick it up and give it a swirl, right? You know, pick that yeast back up into suspension. Right. And then finally, we got to the toy stage, which meant everybody now gets to make their own stir plate or buy their own stir plate because whirling things with magnets is a lot of fun and very scientific. <laughs> yeah, man, it's a real Mr. Wizard kind of thing. And here's the fact is that if you're looking at it from a yeast cell growth point of view, like just the number of cells that you got, this is all perfectly reasonable. Uh, the old school starter was just an airlock you know, versus with foil or some sort of breathable bung and a stir plate going, you actually would see a 10 to 15 fold increase in the amount of yeast. So if you're looking to maximize your yeast cells, doing a stir plate starter and everything else was a perfectly rational idea to do. The science shows it out. You were supposed to grow things in increments, you know, no more than 10 times the size. So if you're starting from like a, a single yeast cell, you'd start off in like, say, 10 milliliters of wort. Uh, or a single colony, sorry, 10 milliliters of wort, and then you'd go up to 100 milliliters of wort, and then 1,000 milliliters, and, and then 10,000 milliliters. You know, all that was, you know, very good and very scientifically uh, rigid. And people's target sizes changed. Again, when I started, it was make a pint starter, and then it became make a quart starter. And then I always used to, you know, make basically two or more quarts based on the size of the beer I was doing. Yep. Same with me, man. I would do I would do two to three quarts based on the gravity of the beer. Never less than two. And if it was a real high gravity beer, I'd do three quarts. Um, and then and then decant because uh, I didn't like all that all that uh, oxidized starter wort in my beer. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. I'd go through the the flask into the fridge for 24 hours and, you know, watch everything fall out. And there are a couple of nice photos on maltosefalcons.com from a run I did that. So you can actually see how much settling happens over 24 hours. It's kind of amazing. And yeah, the decant and then pitch that into your wort and, you know, bon voyage, yeasties. <laughs> but I mean, it turns out that Erlenmeyer flasks are expensive. Making a starter is time consuming, and stir plates have a nasty habit of throwing the magnets around in anything except for an earlier flask. Yeah, right. Well, actually, actually, my jugs work really well, man. I've never had that problem, but I have to make sure that I get the right jug. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I always used to use like these nice recycled methanol bottles from labs. Those work like a charm, but like a regular half-gallon growler that you get at the brewery, the hump was too high. Yeah, no, I have, I have some gallon jugs that I got, um, again, like from apple juice or – actually, my uh, homebrew shop actually sells used gallon jugs for just a couple bucks or so. And so I got a couple of those, and it's easy to find them with a flat bottom that'll work. But as with all things over time, we think that might have changed because, like I said – making a starter every time and doing the word up and all this other sort of stuff and then trying to run these stir plates and make sure you've got two to three or four days, however long it is that you need to do your growth, requires planning. And if there's one thing that homebrewers are less than perfect at, it's planning. I don't know. I do a lot of last minute things. I'm assuming that's the case for you guys out there as well. The other thing, the other thing too, is that, uh, you know, what started popping up was methods that were not only easier and less time consuming, but might actually provide you with better yeast health and better beer as a consequence. 
this is where we start to get into the idea. We talked about that first variety of starter is what we call a viability starter, you know, a yeast growth starter, cell producer. Then, yeah, to Danny's point, there's this whole other notion of what's called a vitality starter. And there are a couple different ways to do it. And we'll, we'll start with, uh, you know, sort of the one that mimics the viability starter in some ways. And then we'll get into, you know, how we both do it now, because it's the lazier way that we think does just as well. And so the Vitality Starter has been promulgated out there on the internet. You can look at the stuff on Brewlosophy, for instance, where they've done a bunch of experiments with this. It's a short growth starter. It's just enough time really for the the starter to come up to high croissant. So you see numbers going anywhere from two to six hours based on yeast health. And you pitch that, you know, ignore the yeast calculators. Don't, uh, don't, don't listen to 10 million cells per milliliter, et cetera. Get the yeast up and rearing and get them ready to go and pitch those in. Uh, the Vitality Starter, also a lot of people will say you can ignore the any oxygen additions, et cetera. So the, the way that uh, that you see promulgated by a lot of people that's kind of halfway between where we where we are now and versus where we started is you go and you make about a one-quart starter, 500 milliliters or so. Some people add O2 to it. Uh, others stir plate it. You pitch your yeast in there. And just let it grow, let it grow, and then drop it into your wort once uh, it's rocking. So, for instance, if you have problems chilling your wort down far enough, like to get it into safe pitching ranges or optimum pitching ranges, I see people actually growing the yeast at the same time that they're chilling the wort, say, in their refrigerator overnight. So that by the morning when everything's cool and in perfect pitching temperature, the yeast is at high health and doing that. So they don't even do it until the very end of the brew day. Or you can do it at the very beginning of the brew day if you have good chilling rigs. Lots of good results from people doing this. Lots of reports of people getting great results from it. A lot of, you know, really attributed to the idea of great yeast health and great yeast activity actually seem to matter a hell of a lot more than the cell counts do. Two to six hours seems like awfully optimistic for it to come to high croissant. Yep. Well, I think this is where people have to have to play around with because that then brings us to the way that we both do it, and I think this is for you to talk about. Okay. Uh, a few years back, a guy appeared on the AHA forum who went by the handle of S-Saravici, I mean, which immediately kind of makes you think that this guy might have something to say about yeast. He was advocating a method that he called shaken, not stirred, or what we call the 007 method. <laughs> is that clever or what? It was based on the uh, fact that Yeast manufacturers don't use stir plates when they're propagating yeast. They use shaker tables. So you make up a, a quart or 500 mils of uh, a wort that's 1020 to 1035. Anything in there is okay. Don't worry about trying to match the starter gravity to the beer gravity. You put it in a container that's four times bigger and you seal it up and you shake the crap out of it until you fill that container with foam. Uh, that also means you don't want to be using foam control when you're boiling your wort or you'll never get the foam in your container. You pitch your yeast into that, let it go, and the next day it should be a high croissant. And you pitch the entire thing, wort and all, into your beer. The whole point about this is is less about the yeast growth and more about 
pitching healthy, active yeast into your beer. And there's two things to consider about this. And uh, first thing I'm going to do is read you a little bit of a thing that uh, Mark wrote for our next book, Simple Home Brewing. He said, in my humble opinion, amateur brewers tend to overthink yeast, especially when it comes to starter size. Yeast cultures grow exponentially. Therefore, they're like a nuclear weapon in that close is good enough. The yeast cell population doubles every 90 minutes until the medium is exhausted or maximum cell density is obtained. After reaching maximum cell density, which is approximately 200 billion cells per liter, additional cell production is for replacement only. What's important when creating a starter is that the cells end up being pitched into the fermentation, have good ergosterol and unsaturated fatty acid reserves, because the pitched cells will share these compounds with every one of their descendants. We need to remember that ergosterol and UFAs are produced in the presence of dissolved oxygen during the lag phase. Therefore, it's important to saturate the starter medium with oxygen when the culture is pitched. The shaken-not-stirred starter method is little more than a low-tech way of maximizing dissolved oxygen when the culture is pitched due to the fact that the foam provides a large surface area for O2 pickup. So basically, the idea is here is that the, the oxygen is providing all these uh, unsaturated fatty acids and sterols that will keep the yeast walls flexible and encourage budding. The oxygen makes it possible for the, the cells to produce those reserves. Yeah, right. Exactly. And in this particular case... Just like with the star sand, don't fear the foam. The foam is actually the point here. Yeah, exactly. The The other point that I wanted to just mention briefly here is uh, we just got back from Australia and also speaking at the conference we were at was Chris White. We were having dinner at one night uh, at a wonderful place called the Metropolitan, who had squid that I don't think either one of us will ever forget. But that's beside the point. Chris came in. We had a few beers. Uh, we started talking. And I said, I'm really glad you weren't at our seminar today because you probably would have just had your head explode when I was saying, throw away your stir plates, stop using yeast calculators, and started talking about the shaken, not stirred method. Chris said, you know, I think that's brilliant. Homebrewers are really too hung up on numbers, and what they really need to do is be concerned with results. So I kind of felt a bit vindicated. Hi, you know, it's like uh, hearing Chris say that that method is is valid and works well uh, meant a lot to me. Well, particularly the whole thing about numbers, right? So, I mean, if you think about why do we talk about numbers, why are professional breweries so hung up on numbers? It's because of repeatability. You know, they, they want to be able to know that they're going to get the same, same results every time. And, you know, in order to do that, they lock down numbers on everything they possibly can. In the case of homebrewers and our methodology, good enough is close enough. Yeah, right. And to tell you the truth, for my taste buds, which is ultimately what matters, this method seems very repeatable because when I do it, the beer pretty much turns out the same way as the last time I did it. People, people like those numbers. They like the reassurance of a number in the in the spreadsheet matching everything. Well, you know what? If I was a commercial brewer, I would say that that would be a good thing to do because uh, I want to keep my shareholders happy and stuff like that. But thank goodness we're not commercial brewers. We're home brewers, and we can do stuff like this, and it's going to work absolutely great for us, and we don't have to worry about all that other crap. Yeah, and of course now with the shaken not stirred methodology and even the vitality methodology, one of the hard parts I think for a lot of people to get over, and admittedly it's one of the hard parts for me, is this idea of taking the all that starter wort and dropping it into your beer. Um, 
you know, cause at least again, when, when I was first starting this stuff, yeah, the idea that you had these things on stir plates for days or injecting O2 and everything else, it was, you know, like you go taste that starter wart and boy, it tasted bad. Um, yeah, in right. this particular case, I think, you know, the idea is that this wort that you're going to be uh, tossing into the beer, it's not going to have the same oxidized, uh, degraded characteristics that you would expect out of, you know, a stir-plated starter that's been going for a long period of time. Yeah, and I have to admit that that was one of the things that uh, really freaked me out at first. And then I did it, and I said to myself, look, what you're putting in there is 5% of your total batch, actually less than that since I make a five-and-a-half-gallon batch. Uh, you know, it, it probably isn't going to be that big a deal. So I took the leap of faith and I did it. And, uh, you know what? I'm really happy I did it. It makes it much easier for me. I don't even know where my stir plate is anymore. Oh, I know where mine is, but it's hidden in a corner. I do wonder, given that we're talking here that the importance is the amount of oxygen, right? From Mark's quote there. Right. Yeah. Again, a lot of oxygen into there. If you had the ability to do oxygen injection, whether or not it'd be worth it, if there's any benefits or anything else to it, or if we're really just getting good enough O2 saturation just from the shaking. Yeah, I I think that we are. And again, I think that's the whole point of it is to not have to do any more O2 injection because you're getting it all from that initial shaking. I know that the Vitality Starter says a lot of stuff about, hey, you know, don't worry about your cell counts. And we've already just said a whole bunch about don't worry about your cell counts. But truth of the matter is that sometimes... I still get a little nervous. And really when I get a little nervous is whenever we go really stupidly big, you know, which I tend to do during the holidays. And for those times when I, you really need to actually maximize your amount of yeast. And by the way, I also think this applies uh, somewhat to lagers as well. But for those times when you really actually do need to maximize your yeast, we've both discussed in the past that we like the idea of using yeast cakes. Right. And in that case, it's not so much a question of cell count as it is biomass, you know? And now we discussed this back in Brew Files episode 28, which was 21 episodes ago. Good Lord. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that was going big and it's about using a yeast cake in order to be able to actually successfully ensure that you get enough yeast and enough healthy yeast into a big, challenging beer to ferment out. And so just as a quick recap of the method, what I do is I will brew a moderate gravity beer. I tend to go no larger than, say, 1055. Denny, what about you? Yeah, I, I try and keep it around in that area. Uh, being a yeast abuser, I have gone as high as 1060, 1065, but uh, really it would be better to keep it lower. And I've been known to make milds before from time to time. That's 1038, which is ideal for yeast growth. So brew moderate gravity beer. Pitch a starter in there, so go make a shaken, not stirred starter, for instance. Get that into the beer. Let it do its magic, and then rack the beer when it's appropriate. You know, the beers come down from high croissant. And then I transfer the cake to a sanitized growler, and I don't necessarily tra transfer all of it. And then I'll use that from the sanitized growler. I know, and I think, Denny, you've said in the past that you've just transferred wort in on top of the cake. As a matter of fact, I did something like that uh, when I brewed today. Uh, I had a batch of American Brown that was ready to get racked out. Uh, I dumped just a bit of the yeast from that into another container to store it because we're going to be pressing apples this weekend, and I wanted to make some cider with it. And I just left the rest of it right in my fermenter and racked the new batch of beer on top of it. Yeah, I have to admit, I can't do that. Uh, there's something about it just won't work for me. <laughs> do it. I, I Really, I encourage you, do it once, get over that fear. 
<laughs> just, just do it. Just do it, man. You can do this. Well, look, we can both admit that we can both enjoy the beers, at least, that we get out of making these starter beers. That's true. But I want you to do this. This is a challenge here right now, man. I want you to do this for me and tell me what happens. You're not the boss of me. I know. Uh, I know. But I, I'm challenging you. All right. Fine. We'll, we'll get there. But however, I think we can also both agree that the one thing that you don't need to do is wash the yeast. Oh, yeah. Definitely. There's there's no benefit to it. And it's just another place you can screw things up and get an infection. Yep, More risk. That's right. Benefit. <laughs> yeah. And so typically my viewpoint on this is that if I brew a five-gallon batch of this moderate gravity beer, the yeast cake that comes out of it is enough for me to get into, say, about 20 gallons of big beer. And that that's enough to, you know, really kind of get things rocking and moving. Also, I know there's a lot of common wisdom out there that does things about dictating where to take your yeast from and where to take it to. So like going from a light colored batch to a dark colored batch or not hoppy to hoppy. And also even from high gravity or from low gravity to high gravity, right? You know, go that way. But I know a lot of professional breweries out there that basically do cone to cone transfers based on whatever's available at the time and not necessarily, you know, what's perfect. Yeah. I mean, I, I have discovered long ago that it just doesn't really matter. So just go for it. And now, of course, speaking of professional breweries, if you don't have the time nor the inclination to brew a beer, go talk to your local microbrewery. You know, your neighborhood brewery is going to have tons of yeast. In fact, local breweries produce so much yeast that you'd actually think that they were yeast production companies and not <laughs> beer production companies. And, you know, they dump yeast all the time. So go and ask your local microbreweries around you if they have any yeast that's about to come out. And if they do, you know, ask if you can steal some. Uh, and what I always do is I have a clean sanitized growler or some other container, you know, maybe a keg if I'm doing a really big batch, ready to go, no hassle, no nothing. Just, you know, show up at the brewery with it. Be there on time and be patient and expect to wait because getting you your yeast is probably item 101 of a hundred item list of things that needs to be done that day. Be patient, wait on it, maybe have a beer and also make sure you're, you're grateful about it. You know, don't just rush in and out and make the brewers feel like they've done you a favor for no particular good reason. And I've got two other tips to add to that. Number one, bring the brewer a beer. Say thanks. They'll, they'll appreciate it. And number two, even easier than sanitizing a growler, a Ziploc bag works great for that. Uh, I know people who keep a couple empty Ziploc bags unopened in their glove compartment. So if they're at a brewery and have a chance to get some interesting yeast, they can just run in, get a bag full, take it home, refrigerate it, and they're good to go. Mary Beth Rains, who taught me about yeast, used to carry Ziplocs with her as well. Yeah, yeah. For exactly that reason. So that's that's really the cheater's method of getting the yeast cake. But you know what? It's a pretty good method. So don't knock it. If oh, you're no. going to make a big project beer. It's a nice thing to do. Or especially if they have like a yeast you particularly like or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've done shop brews, for instance, at the club shop where, you know, we're going to do 50 gallons of beer and, you know, just ask around the area, hey, anybody got any, you know, 001 or 1056 or something simple? And it works like a charm instead of having to worry about growing up enough yeast for 50 gallons. 
Now, the whole reason that we actually started this, you remember we talked about at the very beginning of the episode about you know, Omega Yeast Labs is introducing their uh, proper canned concentrated starter wort. And that reminds me of you know the thing I do all the time. I've talked about it a little bit, but I figure you know, might as well lay out the instructions for real here. The real reason to worry about canned wort is I'm extraordinarily lazy. I know I should be making a starter. There have been times when I have not made a starter because I've been that lazy. And part of what gets me kind of lazy is that whole boil up some wort, chill it down, get it into a sanitized growler, la 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 la. Do that in the middle of the night, you know, so that it's ready to go. Um, it's just another way for me to, you know, avoid making a starter. So years ago, about a, over a decade now, uh, I picked up on technique of actually doing pressure canning. And so if you look at like what Omega is offering at like, I think it's, uh, it's going to come out to about $3 and 25 cents a can for enough work to make a liter starter. And Northern Brewer has a similar product called fast pitch. That's about $3 a can, you know, both of those require dilution and kind of defeats part of the purpose of uh, doing cannings because what I do is I can my wort and then just pop and go. Here's the thing. You notice I've been very careful. I keep saying pressure canning, uh, which is different than hot bath canning or hot packing or water bath uh, canning or anything else. Problem is that with wort, as acidic as it is, it's not actually acidic enough to be safe from botulism spores, at least according to the FDA and the people who, you know, study this sort of stuff with real science degrees. So because it's not safe to, you know, kill or the pH and temperature combination aren't safe to destroy botulism spores. You actually have storage worries and potential production of botulism toxin in your wort if you just hot water bathed it or hot packed it. So you need a pressure canner. A pressure canner is really just a big pressure cooker. And by big, I mean, it's like 23 quarts as opposed to say your four to seven quart instant pot or stovetop uh, pressure canner, but they do go on a stovetop. And you can buy one. I just looked, I, when I bought mine 10 years ago, it cost me 90 some odd dollars and I got it from an Ace Hardware store. You can get it online from Amazon for $68 when I checked and the link will be in the show notes. And I just use a Presto 23 quart pressure canner and you just need that, some DME and some mason jars and all the accoutrements that go with mason jars. So what I will do is I actually about once or twice a year, based on how much I'm brewing and how much yeast production I'm doing, I will break out my pressure canner and I will take, you know, four to six hours and do this. And it gives me enough work for that period of time. I'll take a selection of quart jars and two quart jars or half gallon jars, uh, wide mouth, uh, because much easier that way. And I'll, I'll fill each quart with 3.2 ounces by weight of a light DME and then one pinch of uh, yeast nutrient and then I'll fill it with water up to that band. You know, if you take a look at a mason jar, there's kind of a place where just above the neck, there's a band. And I'll fill it up to there, put a lid on, crank down the, the ring lid that you need to have in the canner, and I'll shake. Shake like the Dickens, and I'll back off the lid just a little bit. They always tell you to make these things finger tight. Don't over tighten the jars, right? So the way they always tell you to do that is tighten it down as hard as you can and then back it off a notch. And so I'll do that. And then I put those in the pressure canner with just a little bit of water and I'll bring the pressure canner, I'll close the pressure canner up and I can do in mine, I think it's about six half gallon jars or a mixture of like seven quart jars plus some other things. And I'll close that up, 
I'll get it up to pressure to 15 PSI. I'll let it run at 15 PSI for 15 minutes, which is the safe time and temperature combination. And then I'll let it cool down naturally, take it off the burner so it cools down a little bit faster. Cool off naturally, and when everything unlocks, I'll pull the jars out and I'll put them aside to cool. After a little while, what you'll start to hear is from the direction of the jars, ting, 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 ting. You'll just hear these pings. What's happening is that the vacuum is forming inside the jar and the lid seals down. And that's when it makes that ping noise. And now what you have is perfectly sterile wort. And by the way, it's a very important distinction here. The wort that's inside those jars is sterile. It's not sanitary. Most everything else that we do as brewers is sanitary. This is sterile. There's nothing living in those jars of wort, which means that they're absolutely perfect for storing on a shelf. And I tend to store them on a shelf for months. I've had some that have been on the shelf for a year. When it comes time for me to make a starter, all I have to do is go sanitize my growler. I sanitize the jar and the yeast packet at the same time, and then just pop open the, the jug of wort, pour it into the growler, pitch the yeast and go. Or, you know, if we're doing a shake and not stirred starter, pour the wort into the growler, shake it up, get it nice and foamy, and then pitch the yeast and go. The point is, is that making a starter for me now is a five minute process that I'm far less likely to laze out on than the whole boil up the DME or everything else. Now, some cost saving tips. If you're making a batch of beer, I know that there's some people who will actually save the second runnings from their mash done. Because, hey, free and easy. I've even known some people who are crazy enough to go and make a full mash just for this purpose because they want to avoid the cost of the DMA. Uh, that sort of falls afoul of my I'm lazy line. So I'll pay the extra money for the DMA. I would take issue with your statement that it only takes five minutes to make a starter because then you're not accounting for the time that you use to uh, make the starter work. But it's still a, it's still a great, great method. And if, if I had if I had room in my kitchen to store a pressure canner, I would get one and be doing this. Oh, yeah. Well, the pressure canner sits in the brewery. It is. You're right. I mean, it's not five minutes to make the starter if you count in the time to make the work. However, it's five minutes at the time when I'm possibly going to laze out on it. Yep. So that, that's what counts to my mind. Um, the pressure canner, by the way, is not just good for pressure canning work. You can pressure can other things as well. Uh, you can all, like meat, for instance, like if uh, I had friends send me venison that they, and salmon that they had canned from their trips to Alaska, both of which can't actually be water bath canned because, again, pH. So they pressure canned them. They were great. Uh, you can make starter media. If you want to get into yeast ranching, you need a pressure canner to serve as your autoclaver. And it's a cheap and easy thing to do. Again, 68 bucks plus the cans. It's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And to me, this is my preferred method of doing it. And I'm glad to see companies like Omega starting to make products to sort of help people get around this. But at the same time, to me, like I get a little freaked out with the idea of like, okay, pop the can of this starter wort and then take freshly boiled water that's cooled down and add that or, you know, count on bottled package water being sterile inside or sanitary enough that you can do this. So this is just my own way of doing it. Plus also in the long run, it's a little bit cheaper. So there you go. And by the way, I know everybody is hot to trot about the instant pot these days. I like my instant pot too. Uh, you could conceivably can something in an instant pot. It's going to take longer than 15 minutes because high pressure in an instant pot isn't 15 PSI. So the temperature is not as high, but also at the same time, I think maybe you'd be able to fit like two jars in there. So yeah, I can't see it being worth it. 
again, this is how I make my my yeast starters. It's my favorite thing, and and it does remind me of the stuff that comes out coming out of Northern Brewer and Omega. I highly recommend it. Like I said, it's sixty eight dollars for the canner, and it's just another technique to add. And also, it's good to know how to preserve things. Anything else that we need to talk about with the yeast, Denny? I think that we've covered just about everything that there is to cover. I would say this is a comprehensive examination of yeast starters. <laughs> no, there's always something more. Uh, if you guys have any ideas of things that we missed or uh, questions about things that we said, please let us know. Just write in to uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com and we will try and get back to you. There you go. And I can't think of anything better to say than be lazy, shake it, don't stir it, and maybe consider canning too. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of yeast, getting them going, keeping them healthy, and making them ferment and do your dirty work. You know, how do you yeast? Are you 100% lazy brewer? An obsessive? Or are you somewhere in between? Let us know. We care. We want to know. So remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com or Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum known to mankind and some only known to sentient mammals. Uh, and don't forget that you can also leave us a voicemail or text us at 626-765-1AL. And you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO or Brewer's Friends links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Nowzad, helping the animals of Afghanistan and the soldiers who rescue them. Well, until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there.